Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 29 this morning. We're going to be back in Isaiah today. Isaiah 29 is really a chapter of hope with sin at the front and center. I'll explain that as we go along. I tend to pay pretty close attention to the news, and as I was studying for this chapter this week, uh, the thought occurred to me a number of different times as I watched the events taking place across the country and the world, that this idea of what will happen to us next is kind of front and center, both in Isaiah 29 and in the world we live in. In the world we live in this past week, uh, big fires in California. I know, again, big fires in California. And the thought occurred to me, I kind of like to put myself in the shoes of people who are in the news. While you're watching these houses burn, they're engulfed in flames. I'm imagining, what if I'm the guy next door and the wind's blowing 60 miles an hour and it's blowing that flame towards my house? What's going on in my head? Well, I hope this doesn't happen to me. What's going to happen next? Look out. And sure enough, some of these subdivisions in California pretty much get consumed by these big fires when the wind's blowing at 50, 60, 70 miles an hour. Um, the thought also occurred to me in watching some of the events take place in, in Ukraine uh, in cities like Mariupol and others like them. Um, what if my neighbor's house just got hit by a bomb or a rocket and I'm right next door. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen to me? Well, I think the same thoughts are going on for the people of Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 29. As we come to Isaiah chapter 29, I think the natural question based on Isaiah 28 for the people in Jerusalem is what's going to happen to us? Isaiah 28, Isaiah prophesies to the northern kingdom of Israel. In Isaiah's day, Israel is split into two pieces, north and south. The northern kingdom, often called Ephraim, or sometimes just called Israel, and the southern kingdom, capital city of Jerusalem, that's often called Judah. The reason they're split is there was a civil war after Solomon died, about 200 years before Isaiah comes onto the scene. And oddly enough, over the issue of taxes, and they split north and south. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel never has a godly king. Not once in its almost 200 years of existence, all 20 of its kings are ungodly. They're evil. They're opposed to God. King Ahaz is probably the, the most prominent of all of them. Um, and, uh, and God brings judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel for that. And that's what Isaiah chapter 28 talks about. And at the very end of 28, Isaiah says, and oh, by the way, Jerusalem, you're just like them. And so guess what might be happening to you next? The Assyrians, who were the military superpower of the day, uh, ruthless warriors, I mean, they'd fit right in with the Russians of today, ruthless warriors, 
took no prisoners, destroyed everything in their path, had basically took over the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And now coming close to 701 B.C., they're knocking at the door of Jerusalem. And Isaiah chapter 36 and 37 gets into that very specifically. Uh, oddly enough, Isaiah doesn't even mention Assyria in even chapter 28 or 29, but as you read on, it becomes apparent that's who's behind all the aggression that's going on against God's people. So here we have the southern kingdom of Israel. And the question is, will God do to his holy city of Jerusalem, the city where his holy temple is located, the center of worship of God in the land of Israel, will he do the same thing to them that he's done to the northern kingdom? That was on Isaiah's mind. It's on the people's mind. Uh, really, there are three messages of hope that comes in here. And it's kind of an interesting contrast as we go through this passage. Because on the one hand, Isaiah continually comments on and reminds the people of Jerusalem of their sin. And on the other hand, he said, God is faithful to his promises. God will not be defeated. And he will always ultimately keep you safe and protected. Not necessarily in the short term, but ultimately in eternal terms. So three messages of hope, if you like it outline. Verses one through eight talks about the last minute deliverance of Jerusalem. Verses nine to 14 talks about the coming spiritual transformation of Jerusalem. And verses 15 to 24 talk about how God will turn the folly of the human mind, the human heart, and transform it into a heart that worships the Lord God. So with that, let's start with chapter 29, verse 1. Follow along as I read. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round, yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be mourning and lamentations, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp around, against you all around, and will besiege you with towers, and I will rage siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. Well, the first question that pops to mind when you come to this passage is who's he talking about? Ariel. What, what is Ariel? He, he, this is not a Disney movie, okay? Ariel. Ariel here is a Hebrew word for an altar or a hearth. Okay? And it's used of the brazen altar that sits in the temple in Jerusalem. Sits just outside the holy place and the holy of holies. This brazen altar is the place where day after day after day, 
sacrifices are made to God for sin. It is the place where the wrath of God is temporarily satisfied by the offerings that God has given to his people. So it is a place of wrath. So when Isaiah uses a simile here, a simile that says, Jerusalem, you are to me like an aerial. You are to me like a place that deserves my wrath poured out upon you. So he uses the word aerial. We know this is Jerusalem from this passage a little later. It's called Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the mount itself where the temple is located. We call it the Temple Mount today. It is the place where sacrifice for sin was made in the Old Testament. And now Isaiah is saying to Jerusalem, my wrath is going to be poured out upon you for your sin. And here's how. Look at verse three. And I will encamp against you all around. Well, God's not going to encamp against them all around, but God is going to send the Assyrians. And they are going to camp around Jerusalem. This actually happens in 701 BC. And as they are camped around Jerusalem, they will besiege you with towers. They will build towers so that they can have access into the walled city of Jerusalem. They will build siege works, ramps, so their troops can come up and invade the city of Jerusalem. Again, while Isaiah is prophesying this, this actually happens in 701 BC. Why is God doing this? Why is he talking about this for Jerusalem? Well, verse four explains that. It's so they will be brought low. It's so that their, that, that their speech will rise up from the earth like dust. It's so they will be bowed down to the earth. It is to humble Israel. It is to humble the people of Jerusalem. It is to cause them to repent of their sin and to change the direction of their lives. To begin to follow God, to follow the Lord their God, rather than to follow themselves and every other false God that they're more interested in paying attention to. One of the things I believe the Lord is doing here is he now is going to explain that there is no problem that is beyond his reach. You may think that these people of Jerusalem are a hopeless case, that they have no chance for deliverance. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've witnessed to people and they have told me, I'm too big a sinner. God can't save me. Well, no one is beyond the saving reach of God. So too here in Jerusalem. That brings us to Isaiah chapter 29, verse 5. I've titled this section, The Lord Disperses the Foe of God's People in Triumph. Verse 5. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust. And the multitude of the ruthless 
like passing chaff. God is saying the multitude here is using it as a synonym for the nations that oppose Israel. He's saying to me, in light of my power as the Lord God of all the universe, they are like a speck of dust or like blowing chaff in the wind, like the shell of wheat as it blows in the wind in the harvest. In other words, that its nations are nothing. And this nation that surrounds you, Israel, they are as nothing before me as well. The end of verse five, and in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. They will vanish when you wake up in light of God's power. Now this language that's used of God's power here is the language of Exodus. It's the language of Mount Sinai. It's the power of God in delivering the Israelites from Egypt. It is the power of God on Mount Sinai where God gave the law, the Ten Commandments to Moses. This is the power. He uses nature to illustrate his power because as we all know, it's uncontrollable. Try to stop the tornado. Try to stop the hurricane. Try to stop the earthquake. Can you do it? Has man with all of our technology and all of our knowledge today, we who think we are so powerful, have we figured out how to alter the weather? No. So this is a great illustration of the unstoppable power of God. In fact, God actually stops the Assyrians in 701 BC from taking over Jerusalem. He causes great confusion among the Assyrian army. And oh, by the way, something bad is happening back home in the capital city of Assyria. So the army has to pull out and go home. Well, who do you think was in control of that? God was. God delivered his people from that. Interesting what he goes on to say next. Verse 8. It is as when a hungry man dreams. And behold, he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams. And behold, he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. God says all the nations that want to pursue and destroy my people, they are going to fail. They are going to fail. My people are not going to be destroyed. The Lord is never defeated by any foe and his people will never be ultimately defeated by Fanny. They will never be destroyed. They will never be eliminated. I was in Jerusalem about seven years ago. And I was in the old city of Jerusalem, in the Jewish quarter of the city. 
There was a t-shirt shop there. I took a picture of the t-shirt. I should have bought the t-shirt, but I took a picture of the t-shirt. And the back of this t-shirt illustrates this very point. The people of Israel know this about their God. Here's what the back of the t-shirt said. At the very top, it said, nations who tried to destroy the Jewish people. Then right below that, two columns. The one column lists the nations. The other column lists the result. First column says this. Ancient Egypt, gone. Philistines, gone. Assyrian Empire, gone. Babylonian Empire, gone. Persian Empire, gone. Greek Empire, gone. Roman Empire, gone. Crusaders, gone. Spanish Empire, gone. Nazi Germany, gone. Soviet Union, gone. Iran, question mark. They laughed in first hour too. I thought it was funny. But it's got a serious point to it. And it's the point God is making here at the end of verse 8 in Isaiah 29. The nations of the world, the multitude of nations of the world who throughout history think they're going to destroy God's people, they have another think a-coming. It's not going to happen. Will God's people suffer? Will they have hard times? Will there be tribulation? Absolutely. But will they be destroyed? Will they be wiped off the face of the earth? No. God promises that here. History demonstrates that. Well, spiritual transformation is coming. Isaiah 29, verse 9. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Isaiah is talking to the people of Jerusalem. Be drunk but not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink. You see, the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem have blinded themselves to the truth. Verse 10, for the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the eyes of the prophets, and covered your heads, the heads of the seers. That's just a synonym for the prophets. And the vision of all this that has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, He says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. Isaiah says there's two causes for spiritual blindness in Jerusalem in Isaiah's day. First, their own deliberate refusal to see the truth. They blind themselves. They refuse to see God's truth, God's word. Second, God's divine judgment on them for their unbelief. God reinforces their blindness. 
They've made the choice and now God turns them over in judgment to their own choice, so to speak. Sounds a little like Romans 1. They are blind by their own choosing and God says, fine. I will let you stew in that blindness. It's judgment upon them for their blindness. Verses 11 and 12 say something even stronger. He gives us an illustration, a picture, so to speak. Those who can read God's word, the educated in the society, the people who know how to read, they don't want to hear it. They won't even break the seal on the scroll to read it. They can't be bothered. God's word's not important to them. To the leaders in Israel, the religious leaders, the political leaders, the civil leaders, the people who can read, who are educated, they don't want to read God's word. But it's not just them that's the problem. He goes on and tells us that even those who are illiterate, those who can't read, well, they don't want to hear it either. Their excuse is, I can't read. Well, what's the solution to that excuse? Why don't you take that book and give it to somebody that can read? But they're not interested in that. God is making the point that his word is so important for spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and keeping our eyes focused on the Lord, and they want none of it. Now, the title of our church is Omaha Bible Church. We chose that for a very specific reason. We know how important the Bible is. So we take pretty seriously around here the study of God's word, the reading of God's word, always putting God's word before you. Why Pastor Pat normally, usually, we study a whole book of God's word. We're going through the book of Acts right now with Pastor Pat. There's something about teaching through God's word in that kind of orderly, chapter by chapter, verse by verse manner that helps us see the bigger truths that God's word is painting. But the Israelites, those who lived in Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, want nothing to do with that. Oh sure, they're religious, but their hearts aren't in it. And that's a danger for us too. We can go through the motions of studying our Bible, of reading our Bible and praying every day. And don't get me wrong, those are good practices. But don't think those are going to make your spiritual life rich apart from a heart that's on fire for the Lord. Apart from a heart that really loves the Lord and wants to serve him and is committed to him and trusts him. So there was great danger here for these Israelites. Great danger. Because they were not reading God's word. Now we come to verse 13. Now what we're going to find is the Lord is going to act supernaturally to reverse his people's spiritually wrong thinking. Verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, 
while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Notice, God says, yeah, they're religious people, all right. But their hearts, their hearts are not with me. They don't have their fingerprints all over. They don't own the fact that they are the children of God. They don't embrace that. And they don't embrace the Lord God. But he's going to do something about it. Notice the very first word of verse 14. Therefore. That implies that because they are this way, here's what I'm going to do. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. While God's people are practicing religious hypocrisy, the Lord is going to save them. This word the wonderful things he's going to do. The wonder upon wonder, that's a word for the supernatural. That's a word for a miraculous work that God is going to do in their lives. The cure for their spiritual blindness is going to be wonderful things and wonder upon wonder. Isaiah uses this word to describe the Savior, the Messiah, in Isaiah 9, verse 6. Isaiah 25, verse 1, uses these words to speak of Israel's salvation. So despite the religious hypocrisy of the people of Jerusalem, God is going to act. He is going to move upon them within their hearts to change and transform them. The last part of verse 14, the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden, is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul talks there about the foolishness of the world, the the wisdom of the world as opposed to what the world sees as the foolishness of following Christ. And the real fools are the ones who follow worldly wisdom. The true wisdom is in those who follow the Lord. And in Paul's case, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it is beyond man's ability to come to God on his own. God must be the first mover. And don't kid yourself, the Lord is not baffled by stubborn human hearts. He is the Lord of transformation. We as Christians should know this more than any other people on earth. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, somehow you came to the conviction that you were a sinner in need of salvation. And then God reached out through the gospel and saved you, brought you to his son, Jesus Christ. And while each one of us truly believed, those of us who are believers have truly believed 
Matthew makes clear we must believe. We were drawn to that by the Lord. The Bible makes no mistake about that. And we as Christians believe the gospel transforms lives, don't we? We can look at our own lives. The gospel transformed my life. I'm sure many of you have wonderful stories of how the gospel has transformed your life. The message of Jesus Christ, the message of salvation, it does transforming works in people's lives. I've counseled with lots of people at Omaha Bible Church. Some of them, the first time I sit down and counsel with them, I'm thinking in my brain, yeah, I really do think this in my brain, they're really messed up. So why don't I just quit? Why don't we just say, well, nothing to be done here. We can't help you. Because I know that our God transforms people's lives He changes us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And we as Christians must believe that because we wouldn't be Christians if we didn't. It's the work of God in our lives. It's the work of God in the life of his church. He loves us so much, he won't leave us alone. He changes us. He molds us and shapes us into the image of his son. And that's what God is going to do here with the people of Jerusalem. How is he going to do that? Well, quite honestly, he's not going to tell you how he's going to do that yet. He'll tell you that in Isaiah 53. But he's going to tell you what he's going to do. Look at Isaiah chapter 29, verse 15. I've titled this section, as well as the sermon today, The Deaf Shall Hear and the Blind Shall See. Here the Lord will answer the question. What wonderful thing, what wonder will the Lord use to deal with the spiritual blindness of his people? How will he do it? Well, first he points out their sin again. He points out how stubborn they are. They are more stubborn in Jerusalem than you think they are. How stubborn are they? Verse 15. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You see, they really think that God doesn't see their sin. They fool themselves. They've deceived themselves. And I believe sincerely so to think, well, God doesn't pay attention to me. God doesn't see me. I can do and act however I want. And God doesn't care. Verse 16. Here's God's evaluation of that kind of thinking. You turn things upside down. You make wrong right and right wrong. Should the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Do you see how in the face of God these people are? They are denying that he's their creator. They are denying that he has any right over them of any way, shape, or form because they're denying that he made them. 
they are pushing back against God in a very strong and abominable way. It's blasphemy is what it is. It's blasphemy. This is the situation that needs to be remedied. It is the folly of the human mind without God. Our society, by and large, in many cases, has declared God to be dead. If not in word, but in practice. It's a danger for us, too, as believers. We get sucked into this culture we live in. We breathe that air every day. Do we think God doesn't care about us? Does he, do we think he doesn't see us? He does. He knows. Just like he knew these people in Jerusalem. Well, now in verse 17, there's a gigantic shift that takes place. Huge shift in tone. And now from 17, clear to the end of the chapter in 24, God is going to talk, or Isaiah is going to talk, God is going to talk through Isaiah about things to come. He's going to talk about the deliverance God's going to provide. First of all, he's going to talk about it in verse 17 in the realm of nature. Look at verse 17. It is not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In Isaiah's day, Lebanon was a weed patch. Okay? Lebanon was a scrubland. Lebanon was not a garden. It was not a fruitful forest. But God is going to change it into that in the future. Verse 18, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Now, just a few verses earlier, verses 9 to 11, we found the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, didn't want to open a book. But what's God going to do now? He's going to open their eyes and give them spiritual sight. He's going to remove their blindness. He's going to open their ears and give them the ability to hear spiritual things and spiritual truth. He's going to do this work in such a fashion that they will see the truth in his book, in his word. And they will follow him. And they will love him. Now this is in that day. Interesting phrase. In that day. In that day is a, is a phrase that Isaiah uses 40 times in the book, in his, in his prophecy. That is more, it's almost double what the rest of the New Testament uses that phrase as. So this is an important phrase in Isaiah. In that day, in Isaiah, 
can refer to a number of different things. It can refer to the time of salvation. It can refer to a time of judgment. It can refer to both at the same time. It can refer to the ultimate climactic fulfillment of God's kingdom. Or it can refer to an interim fulfillment, an event that opens the door to what will happen as you move towards God's ultimate fulfillment. Often we as Christians call that already, but not yet. It's already a sign of that fulfillment that is to come, but it's not yet fully and climactically fulfilled. Well, I think in the case of Jesus, Jesus' first coming, I think Jesus refers to this particular passage in Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, the disciples of John the Baptist have come to ask Jesus a question. John the Baptist, who came to to pave the way for Christ. He, He was the voice in the wilderness that called Israel to repentance. And John the Baptist, at this point, it comes to Matthew 11, he's in prison. And he's facing execution. And surely John the Baptist, like most Jews of his day, were probably thinking, when the Messiah comes... When the Christ comes, he's going to come in and he's going to usher in this great new kingdom of God. Well, here he is sitting in prison. So he sends his disciples. Matthew 11, verse 2. Now, when John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In other words, John wants to know, are you really the Messiah? Listen to Jesus' answer in light of what we just read in Isaiah 29. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus replies to them about the physical healings he's been doing to remove blindness and to restore people's hearing, and the poor who have been coming to him and hearing the good news. And Jesus is saying, I am that one that Isaiah spoke of. I am the one that the Old Testament prophets spoke of. And I not only restore physical sight and physical hearing, I give spiritual sight and spiritual hearing. Jesus called his message living water. Living water to do wonderful things for his people. Wonder upon wonder, as Isaiah says. Wonder upon wonder. Well, what else is going on here? Verse 19, 20, and 21. 
talks about the ultimate transformation in society amongst people as they relate together of the ultimate climax of the return, the second coming of Jesus, of Messiah. What will happen then? What will be this wonder of wonder? The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. The poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. In other words, the disadvantaged in society will be ministered to. They will get what they need. Next verse, 20. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. The corruption in society, in government, in the world will be eliminated when Messiah comes. And then lastly, verse 21. Who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. In addition to the transformation of society, the transformation of the system of justice will be accomplished as well. No more will people be wrongly convicted for things they did not do. And those who deserve to be convicted for what they did will be held accountable. God will judge righteously. God's Messiah will judge righteously. This is the transformation that we're talking about. And Jesus, when he came, was the first fruits of that. Isaiah is talking about it. He's holding it up as a way for the people of Jerusalem to hope for the future, an ultimate future, in the midst of their trials and tribulations, in the midst of the Assyrians knocking at their doorstep and about to bash the door down. Then lastly... Verse 22 to 24. The ultimate fulfillment of the promises God made long ago. Verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, who bought Abraham, the word redeemed involves paying a price, who redeemed Abraham, we'll come back to that in a minute, redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob concerning the people of Israel. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, remember God speaking here, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will worship me. These people who did not want to see my book or hear my words of my book, they will worship me when this happens. Jacob won't hide his face in shame anymore. He will be proud of the fact that his children are worshiping the Lord God 
They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, the Messiah, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. They will stand in total awe of the power of the Holy God of Israel and of his Messiah. This is the future they have to look forward to. And those who go astray, verse 24, and those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. They will want to be taught. They will want to understand. Their hearts will be turned to God. Let's come back to this Abraham. In verse 22. Why did, why does Isaiah throw in Abraham here? Earlier in the book of Isaiah, he's talked about David and, and the promises given to David and how the Messiah will sit on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. But Abraham, he hasn't talked about Abraham much at all. And here, the way this is in the Hebrew, this, this phrase redeemed Abraham is emphatic. Essentially saying, would the Lord have saved Abraham and made promises to him if he did not intend to complete what he started? Would the Lord have made such a big deal about Abraham, the hero of the book of Genesis, the father of the people of Israel? God made promises to Abraham. God saved Abraham. Let's see what God did through Abraham. Listen to Paul in Galatians 3, verses 6 to 9. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. And he's making the point, Abraham was not saved by his works. He wasn't saved by his good deeds. He wasn't saved by his circumcision. He wasn't saved by anything but God's grace. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham became a child of God in the same way you and I do. And that's by believing the message of salvation and trust in the Lord. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. We are all sons of Abraham. We are people of faith. Verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. By the way, we're the Gentiles. Unless we have some Jews here. We might have, but probably not. Would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. He's quoting Genesis 12.3. So that those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. Abraham's pretty important. God made promises to Abraham. God gave Abraham as the example of salvation by faith alone. Paul talks about this in Romans 4. Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
You might have thought God only gave Abraham this little piece of land over there in the Middle East called Canaan, giving him these borders. Oh, no. Here in Romans 4.13, Paul tells us he gave him the world. He's given him the world. Well, what's the author of Hebrews tell us about Abraham? Abraham, the author of Hebrews tells us, was ultimately looking for the fulfillment of God's promise to him. And he talks about that in Hebrews 11, verse 8 and following. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise in Canaan. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah, Abraham's wife, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful, who had promised. God promised Abraham and Sarah a child. Well, Abraham or Sarah has become too old to have children beyond childbearing age, but God does a miracle. And she bears a child. Verse 12, therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, yeah, he's pretty old too, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Jews and Gentiles, all people who have come to God by faith. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and aliens on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Sounds a little bit like John 14, verses 1 to 3, where Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, for his disciples. I think the principle Isaiah is bringing out through Abraham is the Lord will act on behalf of his people and he is faithful to his promises. He is always faithful to his promises. The Lord will never be defeated. The Lord will transform his people from spiritually blind and deaf to spiritual life. Our ultimate destiny as believers in Jesus Christ, the ultimate destination and fulfillment of the promises for believers in Old and New Testament like is to live in the presence of our Lord in the glory of his heavenly city. These are the promises of God Isaiah held out to the people who were in sinful rebellion against him in Jerusalem in 700 A.D., 
or 700 BC. These are the promises of salvation, of eyes to see and ears to hear that he holds, held out to the people in Jerusalem when Jesus walked the streets of that city. So too, these are the promises for us today who are sinners who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, having been declared righteous by trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If these promises are not yours, as you hear them today, I urge you to accept the invitation of Jesus. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. Let's finish with the words of Christ to the disciples the night before he was crucified. I'm sure after the crucifixion, the thought entered their mind. What's going to happen to me now? Here's what Jesus said to them. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you this morning as humble sinners who are saved by grace. You have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we have done nothing to earn or deserve your mercy and grace. Please give us your grace through the power of your Holy Spirit to follow the example of Jesus, to count others as more significant than ourselves. We come to you rejoicing in the promises that belong to us as your children. And we ask you to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we might be steadfast and faithful in our love for him. It is in his name we pray. Amen. As you go this morning, I have a final word for you. May a dying Savior's love, a risen Savior's joy, an ascended Savior's power, and a returning Savior's hope rest upon your hearts and your homes today and throughout this week. Amen.